Have you picked your fantasy MVP and Cy Young Award winners? We'll ask Jeff Erickson of rotowire.com and SiriusXM Radio how he's marking his ballot and much more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of September 15th. It's show number 34 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season, our last regular show, but we will have our BaseballHQ.com Roundtable Awards show in two weeks, and our off-season coverage will begin in December. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Jeff Erickson of Rotowire.com and SiriusXM Radio, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about how the end of the regular season is just the beginning for stat heads and sim players. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Houston outfielder Domingo Santana, and in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about who will be the top players in 2013. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Now the Phils, Brewers, and Diamondbacks are joining the playoff race. we got to talk some baseball. Yes, it's true. As we speak, Arizona has climbed within four and a half games of that second wildcard spot. The Phils are within four, and the Brewers, remarkably, are within three and a half games of making the playoffs. In the first inning of our show, it's our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report. And our old friend, the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's start in uh, San Francisco. They're kind of looks like they're poised for a playoff run, but they might be doing it without their third baseman, Pablo Sandoval. Not that he's hurt, although he has been in the past. But... Uh, He's been a terrific hitter in, in odd-numbered years, 2011. Before that, 2009, 20-plus home runs, 300 batting average. This year, not so much injuries. He looks out of shape, kind of overweight. What's going on here? Well, you know, and, and you look at uh, you look at it, the second half has just been awful. I mean, first half, first half he had 307, six home runs, about 166 at-bats. A, a, decent, a decent first half. Not what we'd like and not as many at-bats as we'd like because of injuries. But second half, we're looking at 246 batting average, two homers, uh, the guy has just been absolutely awful. The, I guess the only thing you can say is that that some of his 
Some of his numbers, his basic skills are pretty solid. 85-86% contact rate. Walk rate has stayed about the same. Batting eyes stayed about the same. But the power seems to come and go. And, and that's the thing that's kind of hard to explain. Uh, last season, incredible power in the second half. We thought, ah, he's back after a disappointing uh, 2010 uh, first half power was okay. Second half power has just disappeared completely. So that seems to be the thing that's fluctuating right now. Uh, maybe he's still got an injury. Maybe he's just overweight. Maybe he's out of shape. It's real hard to tell, but there's a decent chance this guy will not be the starting third baseman if, uh, if, uh, San Francisco goes into the playoffs. But then let's look ahead to next year. There don't seem to be a lot of options for the Giants at third base. Uh, does this, well, let me ask you, put it to you this way, Nick. He's got the even odd year pattern going with 2009, 2011 being solid $20, $25 years, and then 2010 and this year being disasters. Do you buy that kind of pattern? Do you, do you follow that kind of thinking? No, I really don't. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've got to have something for me. I need to have something to explain what's going on, and, and odd even years doesn't explain it. So there's something going on in, the, uh, in his conditioning, in his timing and something going on that's wrong that's causing these kind of fluctuations and right now we've got what a very inconsistent ball player is what we've got when he's good he's very very good and when he's bad he's horrid kind of like the nursery rhyme (laughs) that about sums it up nick and uh, maybe it's one of those situations where the whole thing depends on the context in 2013 at least if somebody decides they want him in the fifth round or the seventh round something like that it's probably too high a price to pay or you know, if his name comes out in an auction format and the bidding gets up over 10 bucks, you'd probably say, I, I just can't take the risk. But on the other hand, if he's fallen to you in round number 19, maybe you do want to take a little gamble on the uh, upside. Right. I mean, there's certainly he's young enough. There certainly is some upside here uh, and very big upside, uh, but you don't know whether it's going to show up or not. Speaking of power that hasn't come from the corners, San Diego acquired Yonder Alonso from Cincinnati in the big Matt Latos deal, and they were clearly looking for some solid power from Alonzo, and I guess you'd have to say they haven't really got it. Seven home runs this year, 358 slugging percentage, more than 450 at-bats. That's, that's not so good. Are there any promising signs here that Alonzo could be a power producer? Well, you know, Alonzo I don't think is going to be a gigantic power producer anyway. We looked at Alonzo as a prospect, as really a B.A. kind of guy with with some sort of decent power. Uh, I don't know that we ever looked at him as a 30-home run guy. But if you look at what's going on in the second half, we begin to see some real promising signs with Alonzo. He hit 259 in the first half. Uh, XBA was 255. That looked just about right. In the second half, we're seeing some improvement. Uh, he's always had a good solid contact rate. His batting eye is up a little bit in the second half. Uh, he seems to be, um, seems to, his power is up in the second half, from from below average, kind of league average in the second half. We're seeing a little bit of growth. Certainly some of what we're, we, we saw early on was an adjustment to where he's playing. I mean, San Diego is going to depress a lot of those numbers, those offensive numbers, but he seems to be making an adjustment. This is not going to be a, um, a top tier, I think, first baseman, but he begins to look like a guy who can be fairly solid at that position. You know, it's it's okay to have a batting average guy in the middle of your lineup because he'll drive in some runs if that's if that's where the the team decides to play him. Right, uh, very definitely. So I think you know I think there's some promise with Yonder Alonso. Uh, if you're if you've got him in a keeper league, I think whether you keep him or not depends upon what kind of price you've got on him. Uh, but it looks to me as though for me, I would guess that that next year should be better than this year overall. 
The Milwaukee Brewers, Nick, are making a really strong run for a wild card, and boy, who'd have thought that five or six weeks ago. And Stephen Nickran's stretch run targets column for starting pitchers has identified Marco Estrada of the Brewers as a guy who might really finish strong. And whether he does or not, it's very late in the season. But what do you think of Marco Estrada, not so much for the balance of this year, but especially for 2013? You know, we've been talking about Marco Estrada a long time. I mean, we, we had him with upside of 15 wins and a 3.5 ERA in the in the forecaster. And, you know, here's a guy who didn't get into the rotation until very, very late. Um, and he's been pitching very well over the last month, a 2.34 ERA, uh, looking extremely strong, 39 strikeouts and 35 innings, a good command ratio, uh, excellent, excellent dominance. I mean, striking out more than 10 guys per nine innings. Uh, BPV of 126 over the past month. That's, you know, elite kind of territory. I think Marco Estrada looks very, very good. Uh, and I think he's shown enough to the Brewers that he's got a good shot at remaining in the rotation next year. That was always kind of the issue. Here was a guy who was kind of sort of a swing man. Sometimes he'd get to start, sometimes he wouldn't. And hopefully he's gotten a real shot in the second half this year. He's kind of proven to the Brewers, I think, that he can be a solid starter. He can work late into games. Uh, he can get some wins for them. Uh, I think he'll be in the rotation next year, and I think he's a good uh, a good guy to have in your team. Yeah, his uh, 126 base performance value for the last month is right in line with his yearly base performance value, which is actually a little higher at 131. And and the base performance value takes into account all those skills and kind of melds them together. And it can be a real interesting thing to look at for a pitcher like Estrada, whose ERA is it's a little bit under four, which is okay. But it wouldn't jump out. It wouldn't jump off the sheet at you. But all the same, maybe it should. And and another thing I I draw people's attention to about Marco Estrada is although his ERA is not great at three seventy seven, his WHIP is down at one sixteen, and and sometimes the the WHIP is a lead for the ERA. You know he's maybe having a little trouble with uh, getting guys out from the stretch. His strand rate slightly high at seventy three percent, bit high on the home run uh, angle as well possibly because he gives up so many fly balls there's a lot to be intrigued by here yeah very definitely i think certainly someone that uh that's worth watching someone that next year you might be able to get uh, get a little bit later in a draft uh, because he doesn't have the big name and because he has been in that swing man kind of position but yeah very very intriguing sort of uh sort of prospect for for next year and finally another intriguing prospect for next year might be sean marshall the relief pitcher in cincinnati he's a left-hander Doug Dennis's bullpen's column is right now going through an exercise where he looks ahead to 2013 at all of the bullpens in baseball, and he started with the uh, Central Divisions. And in that column, he said uh, there might be good things ahead for the Reds, Sean Marshall. Yeah, they could indeed. If you look over, look at what Sean Marshall's done done over the course of the year. He's been very, very good. A 2.80 ERA, uh, a, uh, a more again 10.9 dominance, excellent command. Uh, BPV of 167, that's way, way up there. Uh, a left-hander, yes, but they, they don't seem to use him exclusively as a left-hander. Uh, the thing the thing to think about with Sean Marshall is what are they going to do with a role as Chapman? I mean, here's a guy who obviously has all the talent in the world and is pitching extremely well. He's finally come into his own this year. Does he stay as the closer? Does he head to the rotation? He could be a, a absolutely astonishing, I think, in the rotation. Uh, so, you know, the, the Reds have, have some decisions to make, but it's real clear that Marshall is a very solid number two. Even as a number two guy in that bullpen, he's better than a lot of number one guys in other pens. So the kind of guy you might want to kind of tuck away, uh, kind of just-in-case sort of thing, he's certainly not going to hurt you in terms of ERA and whip. 
uh, and might actually look into some saves somewhere down the line. Also worth keeping in mind, even if they leave Aroldis Chapman in the closer role because they look at the examples out of Texas, for instance, and see what happens when you try to promote a closer into the, into the rotation, Chapman's been unavailable late in this season because of shoulder fatigue, and sometimes shoulder, shoulder fatigue's a bad thing, Nick. Shoulders are worse than elbows as far as pitchers' arm injuries. Yeah, very definitely. Shoulder fatigue is a very, very bad thing. Uh, you you don't want to uh, and you know that there's there are real warning signs when you see a guy getting held out because of shoulder fatigue. And uh, so even if he does retain the the uh, closer role going into next year, Sean Marshall could be one of those great one dollar buys or twenty second round gets for a for a setup guy because he's going to get you some strikeouts and he figures to get some saves when they are resting Chapman or Chapman hits the DL. Yeah, very definitely. All right, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in two weeks' time for our regular season finale, which is going to be our big uh, BaseballHQ.com Fantasy Awards Roundtable with you and Matt Beagle and uh, Ron Chandler and Ray Murphy. Thanks a lot, Patrick. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Harold Nichols, the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman at Baseball HQ Radio. Matt Beagle is coming up with the American League, but first, this message about First Pitch Arizona. Why to attend First Pitch Arizona? Reason number 17. You're one of us. Initially, I was really worried. I don't know if I'm going to fit in. I don't know any of the guys personally. You also get a chance to rub elbows with people who are fantasy players just like yourself that are just really dedicated to the game. And a lot of people will tell you that attended. they've developed... I would say I probably enjoy the camaraderie with the, the fellows that I've gotten to become very good friends with over time. You'll fit right in. We're just a bunch of guys and a few girls who love to watch and talk baseball. We're in our 20s and 50s and, yes, even 80s. And we wear Marlins caps and Cubs t-shirts and Angels jerseys. We'll even let you in if you're a Yankees fan. It's as if you're, you're, you're hanging out with old friends, even if you've never met any of these guys. First Pitch, Arizona, November 2nd to 4th at the Double Tree Suites Hotel in Phoenix. Go to BaseballHQ.com slash seminars slash Arizona for more information and to register. Now let's move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Season's finally winding down, Patrick. It is winding down in a most exciting fashion. I have to confess, Matt, I'm not a big fan of wild cards. I'm not a big fan of the one game playing in the second wild card. But you have to really be happy and excited about a pennant race that's got all kinds of different teams involved, especially including a team like the Baltimore Orioles. That's what it's all about. Uh, the ones you expect to win winning and then the unexpected surprises that drive us statisticians nuts but that's what makes the game fun and interesting is you never know what's going to happen. And it's just great for cities like Baltimore to be in a pennant race, be in the playoff hunt, and uh, really brings back the way it used to be when every team had a chance. Well, I'm not sure every team had a chance even in the good old days, but certainly we can say that there are teams competing this year that would never have been expected to be in that position at the start of the year. Uh, for instance, how about the Oakland A's? Interesting. Trade away Gio Gonzalez and Trevor Cahill, and they end up better for it. Uh, despite taking chances on unproven players. Well, an unproven player, Matt, that a lot of owners took a shot at last year in 2011 was Eric Hosmer of the Kansas City Royals, a top prospect. Everybody had high hopes for him, and he certainly delivered a mid-$20 type of player with 19 home runs. He had 11 stolen bases, batted in the high 200s, 293, 294. And... Uh, course coming into this year they thought okay he's got a good year under his belt a solid rookie campaign and instead the wheels have really come off this year for eric hosmer 
Yeah, he's down to 240, and we certainly have talked time and time again that when you get these great young prospects, their development is not usually linear. Oftentimes they regress, adjust, and then come back better, and we're certainly seeing that with Hosmer. At the halfway point, I wrote an article for USA Today Sports Weekly uh, tabbing Hosmer as one of the guys I really expected to rebound in the second half because he had such a low 23% hit rate. Uh, his expected batting average was 284, despite a 225 uh, actual average in the first half. The only thing holding him back was a low 27% fly ball rate and that low hit rate. Well, in the second half, his stats are really interesting. His average did improve. He's hit 258 in the second half, but his expected average actually went down to 236. And the reason for that is his contact rate plummeted. He's striking out more than ever, 75% for a contact rate. He's drawing a few more walks uh, from 8% to 10%. It seems like he's just getting more tentative at the plate. Uh, you would say trying to work the pitcher, but when you see that strikeout rate go down, you have to wonder what's really happening here. The difference is his hit rate's back up to 33%, so his average isn't as horrible. So here's a guy with really good skills we see in different places, but he just hasn't put them all together at once. And if he's going to hit for power, he's going to have to get that fly ball rate higher than 26%, 27%. And, of course, the flip side of a very low fly ball rate for Eric Hosmer has been a very high ground ball rate, and he doesn't run well enough for that to be an advantage. So that's one of the sources of his low batting average in addition to the lack of power. Especially when you're in a position like first base and people are expecting power out of you. That was the question with Hosmer is could he turn those doubles into homers? And so far it really hasn't with only 13 homers so far. He also struggled against left-handed pitchers hitting 237 in 2011 and 226 in 2012. So he hasn't figured out southpaws either. And that's why Hosmer struggled in 2012 and has disappointed a lot of owners who drafted him pretty high. Yeah, that left-handed pitching situation is really a concern, isn't it? Because... He's demonstrated that he has the kind of skills that grow with time. He's had a, a solid walk rate in the second half of this year. He had a solid contact rate in the first half of this year. And you think to yourself, well, those are skills he's shown. If he just puts them together, he's going to have the kind of skills that lead to a good, solid batting average. But being able to hit left-handers might be a different thing. And so I'm wondering, Matt, looking forward, what do you think of Eric Hosmer now for 2013? I still like him for 2013. He's just about 23 years old, so still very young with a lot of major league at-bats under his belt. I think he can reverse that trending as lefties. I think he can learn to drive the ball. I think it's just going to take some time, and you have to discount these young players. Instead of overvaluing, anticipating the upside, you have to discount and understand there's a reason why there's everybody knows what a sophomore slump is. When the league adjusts to you, they can exploit your weaknesses, and until you prove you can adjust to those uh, counter moves by your opponents, you're going to struggle. And we see this time and time again with rookies and with second-year players that they don't just get better every year. It usually takes a period of adjustment to return and analyze what the league is doing to them and then for them to adjust and successfully adapt to that. Yeah, we have done research at BaseballHQ.com, Matt, as you know, that suggests the threshold that you want to be paying attention to young players is the season in which they hit that 800 plate appearance mark because the next year is when they really start to accelerate up to the elite levels, especially when they're young players. Usually we thought it was age 26, but it more turned out that age 26 was when they hit that uh, 800 plate appearance level. Eric Hosmer will finish this year at around 1,000, 
So he could be a real good bet for 2013. It might be a sleeper based on his subpar performance this year. Now, speaking of subpar performance, Stephen Drew's been a disappointment for the last few years, mostly because of injury. He's now out of the National League, got traded to Oakland, which is trying to shore up for the stretch run. How do you like Stephen Drew as an Oakland A and looking ahead? Well, I think it's going to be very difficult this year. He came off a really severe injury that kept him out. And I think when you lose it in your legs, you lose your speed and your power. And we see that this year with only a few home runs with Drew and not nearly as many stolen bases. It's going to take some time for him to get healthy, be confident, and return to that power and speed combination he displayed earlier in his career. In the meantime, he's disappointing people with a 209 average, but his expected batting average is 243. His uh, contact rate has been dropping each of the last four years from 84% back in 2009, consistently down to 76% here in 2012. His low hit rate is uh, also making his skills look even worse. He's actually expected by average, like we said, 243, because he's increased his plate patience. He's always been relatively patient at the at the dish, but this year up to 12% walk rate. So I think here we see that uh, a guy who's struggled, he hasn't got a lot of at-bats the last few years, he struggled with injuries, and uh, I don't think I'd expect too much from him in 2012, but I think with a full off season to train and really get ready for the season, I would expect him to uh, bounce back with a, a much better year in 2013. Matt, down in Texas, second baseman Ian Kinsler has been one of those guys who's always flirted around the higher levels of most drafts, a good solid $20 player, a power-speed combination, but his Achilles heel has tended to be his batting average, and that's certainly again the case this year. Well, Kinsler's been a batting average risk. If you look at three out of the last four years, he's hit 263 or lower. The only year he hit above that was 2010, he hit 286, and that year his expected batting average was 256. So I think, again, everyone expects Kinsler to take that next leap, and they bid based on that instead of what he's actually done. This year we see his walk rate has plummeted from 13% to 8%. We see his contact rate has returned to his career norm of 86%. In 2011, we were disappointed because he had a low 24% hit rate. Um, but we see that he also had a career-high contact rate. We thought maybe he was developing a new skill, but in fact that was a fluke. He's regressed back to his normal contact rate. He still has a low hit rate this year of 28%, um, and we see that in the first half he did great. His expected batting average was even better than his batting average because he was you know, putting the ball in play at a 26% line drive rate. But in the second half, his line drives have disappeared, and instead you see fly balls, and his home run per fly ball rate's down to 8%, and even though he's hitting more fly balls, he's getting less homers. And that's something that might change. It varies a little bit. I know, Matt, uh, doesn't this strike you as the kind of guy who, again, looks like a bad year in 2012, might set him up for a much better year in 2013? You might be able to catch a top-value player for less than top-value dollars? Exactly. It's looking at what does he actually perform, and then what upside does he have or what downside. You know, Kinsler has a large standard deviation of his performance. So you have to factor that in, that this is a guy who you don't want to take too early because it's very risky. He has to get 30-30 to, to justify that draft position. But if you can get him in the third round, maybe he's got that first round upside you're looking for. And uh, at that point, you're getting him at a much lower price. See, you're not depending quite as much on him across all the categories. Also in Texas, Matt, the pitcher Scott Feldman came into 2012 without a clearly defined role. Then they had a bunch of injuries in their rotation. Now he's there, and the results don't look that good on the surface. 497 ERA, a whip around 135. 
But when we look into it a little bit, these skills are, to say the least, intriguing. Yeah, Feldman has really been working on his control, getting the ball over the plate, now only walking two batters per nine innings, 1.4 since the All-Star break. Here's a guy who now has strikeout-to-walk ratios more than 3-1, to one, uh, but he doesn't look that good because he has a 33% hit rate and a 64% strand. When you're allowing more base runners and stranding less, it's going to artificially inflate your ERA. And that's what's going on here with Feldman. Uh, we look at his stats, and his base performance value has been 75 or higher each of the last two years. He only pitched 32 innings in 2011, but he was a very effective pitcher, much better than his 394 ERA would lead you to believe. He's striking out a league average six and a half batters for nine innings, so he is getting some strikeouts now. And he's gotten better control, walking less batters. So this is a hidden gem here that someone could get pretty cheap, maybe on some waiver wires still down the stretch. Over in Baltimore, we talked about the Orioles' terrific uh, run that they're having this year. And one of the reasons, in a quiet sort of way, has been the pitcher Wei Yin Chen, who started the season probably everybody trying to remember uh, who is this guy. But he's, he's proved to be a pretty decent pitcher. Very quiet signing, especially compared to Hugh Darvish. He was sort of a crafty lefty, and that doesn't usually translate across cultures. But like Hiroki Kuroda, he's actually been better in the States than he was in Japan. And again, here's a guy who controls the strike zone pretty well. Less than three walks per nine innings. A nice strikeout rate, again, higher than he had in Japan. 7.4 batters per nine innings for a 2.7 strikeout to walk ratio. You got to be careful with him. He does give up a lot of fly balls, 42%, and that's especially dangerous in Camden Yards. But in the second half, his expected ERA is 371. He struck out nearly a batter an inning for a 3.4 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio. The reason you don't see it is he's got a 15% home run per fly ball rate uh, for the second half, which hides some of his effectiveness. So if that normalizes at all and he can maintain the other skills, there's a base performance value of over 100 in the second half. This guy's you know, quietly really been a force. Any... Uh concern about a relatively low ground ball rate he's only not even up to 40 percent it's kind of in the same ballpark as his fly ball percentage but are you concerned at all that he's getting so few ground balls which uh, would seem to suggest that there's a propensity for home runs because of the ball being in the air yes and we have a fly ball pitcher you know your stats can really vary quickly because you're putting the ball in the air and he's in Camden Yards where it's a very hitter friendly ballpark and he's going to play a lot of games in Yankee Stadium very hitter-friendly ballpark. Same with the Sky Dome in Toronto. Fenway Park can be very friendly. You know, lefty in Fenway Park with the short green monster there. Lots of hitter-friendly parks in the AL East. So uh, is is something you have to be aware of with Chen. Although we should say that a, a 40% ground ball, 40% fly ball, 20% line drive is not unusual among pitchers. So it's it's not like we should be sitting back and scratching our heads and wondering, how does this guy get anybody out? But the fact is we do tend to prefer guys who are more extreme in one direction or the other rather than this down-the-middle kind of approach. Yeah, we really like to see guys who have low ground ball rates and high strikeout rates with very few walks. Right, high ground ball rates, you mean? Yes, excuse me, high ground ball rates. Right. And finally, Matt, uh, terrible year for Boston. Obviously, there's going to be some great disappointment and a lot of adjustments made. And one of the whipping boys in Boston this year has been Dice K. Matsuzaki. cost them a fortune was not a particularly effective pitcher for most of his Boston Red Sox tenure. He's approaching free agency this year. What do you make of his year this year and his career overall? He's such an enigma, it's hard to predict. So that's why the numbers can be so important. And yes, the numbers have lied in the past somewhat. Uh, In 2010, we thought he was a much better pitcher than he showed. 
even though he's got an ERA of 720, there's a lot to like here, believe it or not. His expected ERA is 4.5, which is serviceable in the American League. He's striking out 8.2 batters per nine innings. Uh, in the past, he's walked nearly five batters per nine innings over most of his career. He's got his walks per nine innings below four, 3.9. He's got a horrible 56% strand rate, horribly low, which, again, shows a lot of luck working against him, a high 33% hit rate a high 15% home run per fly ball rate. Uh, when you look at his splits, uh, he does have a high fly ball rate most of his career, but here, 42%. So high fly ball rate and a high home run per fly ball rate yields bad results. So while there's a lot of things going on here against him, on the surface, there's a lot of good things working for him with strikeout rate, with uh, his hit strand rates. His unlucky home run for fly ball rate. I don't know if he's ever going to be that superstar Cy Young pitcher that uh, many saw in 2008. But that year, we warned you, his expected area was 443. We warned you of some problems with his control and with his fly ball rate. Now that he's been in the league several years, he's not as horrible as everyone says. He's a great $1 pitcher for next year. Do you think there's any cause for concern that here's a guy who routinely pitched huge innings in Japan, and after a couple of years here, he started having a lot of arm troubles, a lot of injury troubles. Is this a cautionary tale for all Japanese pitchers, given the change in, shall we call it, pitching philosophy among their teams about how pitchers should prepare, how often they should pitch, and so on? Uh, I guess it could be. It's very difficult to make a, a generality like that because each pitcher is so different, and, and this is really just one that we can see. I mean, they do pitch less frequently there. They do nibble and use a lot more breaking balls generally in Japan uh, as opposed to challenging with the fastballs we tend to here in the States. So there's a lot of things that are difficult to translate over, and there's examples like Kuroda and Chen that we mentioned that weren't as good in Japan sometimes as they are in the, in the major league setting. So I, I think that there's a very different game from Japan to the United States, and there's different philosophies operating, a lot less bunting here in the United States compared to Japan, for example. In Japan, they play for that run as opposed to the big inning and the big hit. So I think there's a lot of different factors. I think the thing I find most, uh, if I had to make one conclusion, is in the United States, you've got to throw strikes. You can't nibble around, and that's been the problem with Daisuke's whole career is he won't just challenge the hitters. He's got good strikeout rates. But he's trying to, to find the corners over and over and walking so many guys and putting himself in a bad situation. All right, Matt, thanks very much for doing this. You have your Market Pulse commentary later in the show. Looking forward to it, Patrick. All right, Matt, uh, thanks for doing the show. Uh, we won't have you on doing the American League Market Watch next week. We'll have you on for the season-ending roundtable. All right, Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Jeff Erickson of Sirius XM Radio and Roto-Wire is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Why to attend First Pitch Arizona? Reason number 44. It's an amazing three-day event and will absolutely give you a leg up on the other owners in your leagues. I try to make sure that the program is... Um... It's fresh every year with new topics, and people obviously will learn a lot from that. I do. I mean, I've been playing fantasy baseball since 1984, and I always learn by attending the talks uh, every year that I'm able to apply to managing my roster or draft day. When we're not at the ballpark, we're running seminar sessions and competitions. The slate of speakers at these sessions is incredible. There's all kinds of different educational uh, topics, and uh, it, I think it helps make people a better player. Nowhere else will you ever find this many top baseball experts 
together in one place at one time. First pitch, Arizona, November 2nd to 4th at the Double Tree Suites Hotel in Phoenix. Go to BaseballHQ.com slash seminars slash Arizona for more information and to register. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's my pleasure now to be joined by Jeff Erickson of rotowire.com and Sirius XM Fantasy Baseball Channel on the satellite radio. Jeff, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, thanks again for having me, Patrick. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, it's always fun to talk with you too, Jeff. Uh, let me start by asking you about your uh, expert league team in Tout Wars and Labor and uh, as well, how are you doing in NFBC? Mostly been a good year. My labor team was kind of is, is kind of a, just a hot mess, but uh, I blame that on lack of prep time. Really, it, it was really just bad drafting. But uh, we can blame it on that. Ricky Romero, you know, I've got a. I, I no longer have a soft spot in my heart for him. No, but uh, and a handful of other things. But no, that one's unfixable. But uh, AL Talent, it's uh, me and uh, Larry Schechter again, head to head. Uh, we are within a point of each other. We've been uh, for the last month or so. It's been we, we've kind of broken away from the peloton. Uh, it's just the two of us there again, uh, but uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I have Mike Trout in that league, so you know I should be contending. But uh, so it, it's been a good league, though. Uh, I, it sh- should be a really good race down the last couple weeks. NFBC is breaking my heart, though. I was fourth overall, I think, at midseason. I was winning my league by a good twenty points, and then my hitters just stopped hitting. Uh, and there's nothing worse than just watching an offense every day, one homer at best. Three RBI, four RBI, and just day after day of that. Uh, my top three picks in that league were Justin Upton, Dustin Pedroia, who was banged up most of the summer, and then Desmond Jennings. So yeah, I'm. I, it just it's just soul draining to see that when you're just not getting the offense. So uh, I, you know, it's, I, had, I had a good solid team at one point, but it's not no longer contending. It's it's second in my league, forty fourth. 43rd overall, something like that. Those three players look like uh, all look like pretty decent bounce-back candidates for 2013, though, don't they? Oh, I agree, wholeheartedly. Uh, my theory, and I'm going to run with it, I, I think, it, uh, Justin Upton, is that thumb injury he had back in April really was much worse than I think was let on. You know, they said he's okay, he's playing through it, but really, I, I think it really affected his power output, and I think that's where you're seeing the biggest drop-off. And also back control is an issue there. So I, I would suspect that he's a good bounce-back candidate. Pedroia was clearly injuries. In fact, he's already started to turn around. Jennings also is a little banged up. Uh, now, he's a little bit different. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't have that established baseline. He doesn't quite own that skill just yet. So I'm a little I, – I, you're buying on the come with him a little bit still. And, of course, Pedroia also a thumb injury, so he had two thumb injuries. Uh, and people underestimate small-seeming injuries like that, don't they? Oh, completely, all the time. Uh, hand injuries, thumb injuries, wrist injuries, uh, you know, those are always, it's not just how long you're out, it, what ha- it's what happens when the, guy, the player comes back. Not everybody can be a super healer like Albert Pujols, you know, more often than not, yeah. th- those injuries linger much longer than people realize. Uh, I said at the top of the show, it's kind of interesting now, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and even Arizona kind of sneaking their way back into the wild card chase. Um, first of all, what do you think of the wild card as a concept, the second wild card in particular, and then what do you think about the race? Well, I think if you're going to add that extra team, I would just as soon do away with the the, uh, the content, uh, the uh, whole divisional aspect of it. I just take the top five teams in each league if you're, you're insistent on doing it that way because I think it provides a little bit of an unfair advantage based on geography. You happen to be in the central, uh, like the Tigers or the White Sox, 
Uh, you could have, and I'm not even sure exactly if it plays out exactly this way, but, uh, but you could have a worse record than the two wildcard teams, but because of geography, you get that, you know, sit out those playing games, you get to get your rotation set if you win your division. That construct, uh, doesn't work. And last year was a, it's just a glaring example of it even more so than this year. Um, I, I think they're trying to manufacture drama when we had plenty of drama last year on the final se- day of the season. I, you know, I, I, Think that uh, they're 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 almost trying to recreate what they don't need to recreate, and they're going to create other problems as a as a result of that. Uh, I'm I'm in uh, team chaos. I just like uh, Joe Sheehan was saying on his podcast the other day. You know, I, I'm rooting for just all sorts of wacky things to happen here, just so we can you know, you know kind of just demonstrate all the all the possibilities of that happening. Like a seven way tie for that last spot or something like that, and then well, yeah, I love how the NL is all of a sudden in play now. And it was, you know, the AL we've been dreaming up these scenarios for a while with the A's and the O's and the Rays and the Angels and the Tigers and all that. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it'd be kind of funny to see the Yankees on the outside looking in too. It, it just, for, but uh, from just from a entertainment standpoint, there see both the Yankees and the Red Sox both miss it, and then still have people say that baseball is all about money. But that could be another thing for another for another day there. Yeah, and it would also be more interesting if the Yankees missed the playoffs but have a better record, as you mentioned, than, say, Chicago or Detroit, who happen to win the Central. Yeah, exactly. Once again, making it about geography. And I love that the A's are uh, turning things over on their head. I mean, the, the fact that you know, if you had the exact of the A's and the O's as your two wild card teams this year, uh, how much, uh, how, what sort of odds you could have gotten on that at the, at the yeah. start of the year? It's, it's just extraordinary. The Orioles, in particular, are just just a mind-boggling story. They have 56 starts from three starters with over a five ERA that are no longer in the rotation. Arietta, Mattis, and uh, uh, Tommy Hunter, and those, those guys have been awful in the rotation. Yet they still are where they're at. They've been outscored on the season, at least they were as a couple of days ago. And I forget exactly what the run differential is right now. But point being is, you know, they've they've done it on all these things. Is is there some sort of skill in winning these close games, or is it completely blindly luck, as some sabermeticians say? You know, I, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, there might be some actual like ability to try to get guys to achieve at the right time. I, I think it's plausible. At least it's worth exploring when you have such an extreme outlier like the O's and their record in, in uh, one-run games and extra-inning games. I think it's at least worth exploring to see if there's something that they're doing right. Maybe it bears further analysis. A minus-20 run differential for Baltimore through last Thursday night. Uh, the only team with a ghost of a chance that is a, a negative right. run differential. All right, and who do you think when the dust all settles, we've got a couple of weeks left to go and all of the, all of the uh, head-to-head matchups that are going to take place inside the divisions, who do you see coming out of this when the dust settles? Well, uh, you know, let's set aside uh, the NL West and NL Central. I think that's pretty well solid, even the NL East. So, you know, Braves are in, and I think the Cardinals are still the next best team in the NL. I think they'll hold off the charge. I know they've kind of been... Uh, you know, sucking wind down the stretch there, uh, getting swept by the Padres, for instance. But uh, I, I still think that they have the best talent. Uh, I think the best lineup of those teams. I know the Dodgers tried to stock up. I think the Phillies. I mean, they're making this nice little run, and they've got a great schedule. I'm just going to say that Lightning doesn't strike. Uh, you know, they don't catch Lightning in about two years in a row with these improbable comebacks. I think the Cardinals. You get that last spot in the NL you know, and the AL. It, it's so much more convoluted because all the division races, except for basically the AL West, are in play. Um, I, you know, I don't think the Yankees are who they were earlier on. Uh, I, I worry about Sabathia. I don't. I, I'm going to say that. I, I want to say that the the O's. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. I wanted to do it. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I'll say the Yankees hang on, and I think the O's hold off the Rays. 
I, I think that uh, one of just one team from the AL East makes the wild card. I think that uh, the you know, I, I actually think that the Angels are going to improbably come back here in the uh, the other wild card spot. I know there's still three games out. I think three and a half games out even still, but the A's just have a gauntlet of a schedule for the last couple of weeks. So I, I think they're going to fall off. Uh, so I'll say that the Angels are the other wild card. And who who wins the World Series? Do you think? Oh, so hard this year. Um, I will say this: in January, I went out and I got myself a Reds to win the World Series at twenty five to one. So I'm pretty happy with just having a, having one of those spots in the tournament, if you will. Um, I, but uh, I, I think that the best team in baseball is the Rangers. I think that I, I, you know, they had a number of injuries this week, and I want to see how that plays out, see you know, what happens with Beltre in particular. I think that he's just a huge linchpin with this team, and if that shoulder is at any sort, way, shape, or form a, a problem, that, that, that's a big issue for them to overcome. But assuming that he's okay and ready to get full go for the playoffs, I'll say the Rangers. You know, I think it's interesting that if the Rangers and Reds end up meeting in the World Series, you're going to have two very similar managers insofar as statistically-based analysis goes in that they're both perceived as poor tacticians, poor in-game managers, but excellent clubhouse guys. You know, their players love them. What And it's the question, what matters more? I think in the long run, it's the clubhouse stuff. It's the get the most out of it for a long run. But clearly, in a short series, everything's under the magnifying glass. We saw Ron Washington's tactical flaws last year. You're going to see, if those two meet up, you're going to see more bunts with men on second base and nobody out than you've ever seen in any other World Series, I think. But uh, the, the tactics kills me, drives me crazy. Uh, but at the, at the same time, at least uh, in the AL games, you'll get to see Todd Frazier play at least a few times. So there's that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Erickson from rotowire.com and Sirius XM Fantasy Baseball Channel on Sirius XM satellite radio and jeff let's talk about the fantasy season of 2012 what do you think the big story was strictly from a fantasy perspective well it's all things trout i think <laughs> i i haven't seen a guy single-handedly shape a lot uh, so many different leagues i bet you if you took a polling on and seeing where the average mike trout owner was in all these leagues uh it would be off the charts uh, it'd be top three i think I, i'm pretty sure i know I, i'm in 17 different leagues five, four of them are score sheet another one's stratomatic so those four those five don't count but my my standard rota leagues i think that i think 10 of the 12 teams are you know i think they're all in the top three maybe even maybe two or higher it's 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 pretty remarkable how well those teams have done um the other th- the big thing is again batting average is still depressed it's I, I think in Towers, I'm in first and batting average. I'm hitting 268 as a team, something something of that nature. It, it's or maybe 272 in second place at 268. Point being is uh, in these, especially in these only leagues, you know your your bar for what you need to do well in certain categories is much lower than it's ever been. So uh, uh, it, it's you just kind of have to ratchet the expectation. Kind of a relative thing, however, isn't it? Uh, the pitching looks better, but as Todd Zola said uh, once when I was talking to him about this very topic, the uh, seeming ascension of pitchers making it easier to get a 3.6 ERA pitcher, he, he pointed out, well, it is, but of course it's equally hard for everybody, and a 3.6 pitcher is not as valuable as he was five years ago because there's more of them. So the same is the same thing not true of a batting average situation where everybody's batting average is generally down, so we all sank together? Well, no, but here I think what the takeaway from it is not that. It's that uh, the guys that can produce in the other four categories but still hurt, that hurt your batting average, they become more valuable in this format because 
their their right. impact on, uh, on your batting average isn't as great. It doesn't hurt you as badly. Uh, so you can take a you, you can take a chance on an on an Adam Dunn, for instance, or you know it's just the first name that pops to mind, and make he can still be a positive player despite having a horrendous batting average. I, I think that's one thing you can kind of address. I know Ron has done something in Tet Wars where he came in basically punting batting average, and it's played to form. He is in last in batting average, but he's third place overall. If he had a couple breaks go his way, he'd be right up there uh, up at the top. And you know, I, I think that it's. Just I, I, you always want to kind of look at those trends and see, okay, what sort of window does it give me? Can it give me a bargain opportunity somewhere? Yeah, and Ron's Tout Wars team, which he punted, as you said, batting average. He also might have might even be in first place had he not made it sort of a, a religious pursuit not to get a good batting average. <laughs> so there's that. I think every team can play the what if game. And my team, you know, I made one huge mistake in bidding, fabbing the very first week. There's two guys that were available that were newly minted closers. And I, I want to spend half my fab to get one of them. I chose Hector Santiago instead of Fernando Rodney. Look how that's turned out. That's I, a huge what if. I have I have seven saves on the season, and a much higher ERA and WHIP because of that. I just couldn't wrap my head on around the concept of Fernando Rodney control pitcher. Yeah, me either. And I made exactly the same choice early in my uh, AL only home league. Grabbed Hector Santiago, patted myself on the back, and then uh, put myself behind the eight ball for the whole year. Uh, uh, I'm going to guess uh, you're going to take Mike Trout as the fantasy rookie of the year. So we'll skip by that and go straight to the National League. Uh, who do you think is the rookie of the year for fantasy purposes in the senior? Well, I don't think it's a clear choice. I think there's three guys, and uh, it's a guy that uh, just uh, you guys wrote up on Baseball HQ about. Uh, in fact, or fluke, I think is the guy. That, Kind of turns out the top is uh, uh, is Aoki on Milwaukee. Norichiki um, Aoki, uh, you know, twenty four stolen bases. He's getting that playing time now. The acquisition cost is nothing. I mean, he, he and and in an NL only league, he was a dollar player, maybe a two dollar player. So from a fantasy MVP point of view, not just a fantasy rookie of the year, definitely it's Aoki. Otherwise, you can make a case for Frazier or maybe Bryce Harper. Uh, I think there's not. It's not so obvious in the National League. I think all three of those guys are pretty strong now. Yeah, I always think when you're talking about fantasy award winners as individual players, you have to take into account how much value did you get for how much it probably cost you. You know, Miguel Cabrera is going to be a $35 player year in year out, but you're going to pay every nickel. Whereas, you know, if you get, grab an Aoki for a buck and he turns $19, that's value. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And uh, yeah, and you, know, you had to be patient though. The problem was that first month of the season, you didn't get anything out of him really, uh, you because know, mm-hmm. he was playing so infrequently. Now that he's playing virtually, uh, you know, five days a week, pretty much, he's been a lot more valuable. And quietly, he's been one of the guys that's helped set the table for the Brewers' surge. I, mean, I, I think they dug themselves too much of a hole to climb out of, but it's pretty impressive to see what they've been doing lately. It is indeed. Uh, in the American League, who is your pick for uh, fantasy Cy Young? You know, it's not an obvious one here. I think David Price has probably been the most valuable AL pitcher. Uh, for but again, you, uh, for the price, Chris Sale, you can get a pretty strong argument. And of course, uh, the aforementioned uh, Fernando Rodney. Again, he you know, if you drafted him, and it was a huge if, even in AL only leagues, it was as it was a reserve pick. Uh, it, it's used like all and faith in all things Tampa Bay, which we I think we have to really seriously consider every year. But uh, I, I think that you know, otherwise you got him in fab bidding, and hopefully you chose right uh, and got and chose him instead of uh, Santiago as uh, the first uh, fab week uh, bidding period. So yeah, those two saves early on. Yeah, my vote I think is going to go to Chris Sale uh, when we talk about these same questions in a couple of weeks with our Baseball HQ roundtable. Saw Young in the National League for fantasy purposes. Uh, I think it's I think it's uh, one and the same. Ari Dickey. It's both 
per cost and per, for what he did. Uh, I mean, how, how can you argue with that? I, uh, James McDonald at the halfway point was right there with him, but then he's really dropped off severely in the second half. Uh, special mention to two guys, a stretcher on Chris Medlin. If you held on to him, uh, you're, you're patting yourself on the back, and uh, I'm going to give myself that little pat on the back because I held him in three leagues all year long waiting for this. So I'm really happy to see uh, him kind of dominate like this down the stretch. Uh, and then finally, Kyle Loesch. If you look at his numbers all season long, we kept on saying, is this, is this for real? Oh, it's going to drop off. It's going to drop off. Look at the bad. Look at uh, the strand rate. You know, it never dropped off. Right. K rate's even uh, slightly up even on this season. I, I'm impressed with the season he's turned in. That raises an interesting question, Jeff. Uh, we have all of these metrics, and we say we expect regression, but we're starting to think, at least I am, that a single season or a half season is not necessarily a long enough time for that regression to occur. A, a bad start does not necessarily augur a, a guarantee of any kind for a strong finish or vice versa. Within a season, a guy could easily maintain a string of good or bad luck. I, and the other thing is, I think most of these tools are great, but I think more often than not, they're backward-looking. They're not really the strongest predictive tools. Uh, you know, I, I think it doesn't. It fails sometimes to me, uh, meld the physical scouting of a player, for instance, something I'm not capable of doing uh, with with the statistical uh, profile of a pitcher. Uh, or, or it doesn't even explain how a guy is doing that. Now, some guys, I think, do have a lower for instance, may have a lower baseline for their BABIP or something, uh, or their home run to fly ball rate. Matt Cain comes to mind as, in terms of that, for that metric. But, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, and the sample size, certainly for pitchers, I think, is that. And the, the final question of that is regress to what? You know, is there, what is he regressing to? Uh, you know, right. it's easy to say regression, but it's another thing to actually come out with some, any sort of precision about it. Uh, and I think that's uh, an area that we're still working on. It is indeed. Uh, let's talk about most valuable players. Uh, I know Mike Trout's probably going to get a lot of talk as the MVP for the American League in real baseball when those votes are cast. He certainly has a lot of case to be made as a fantasy MVP. Is he no brainer in- for fantasy MVP? I mean, by whatever measure you choose, he is the fantasy MVP this year. It's not even close. All right, then we'll skip over to the National League and ask well, you about I, that. I think please. the better question, though, is this: If you're drafting next year, where do you take him? Yeah, Ron Chandler has already stirred up some controversy by saying he's going to be, you know, the next year's Eric Hosmer more likely than he's going to be next year's Mike Trout, you know, V2. Yes, uh, and he's going to be taking the top five picks. He'll be taking the top three picks and maybe the top pick overall in a lot of leagues. I personally have Cabrera and Braun over him, and that's when I have to start thinking. But, you know, it's really, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to let that go by. Um, Patrick, where, where would you, how early would you take him next year? I think the risk is too high. I mean, if he fell to me eight or nine, and I'm looking around, and what I see there is maybe Justin Verlander's competition because I prefer hitters over pitchers. I think even with a fairly sharp regression, especially in power, he still has the potential to be a lower first-round, upper-second-round guy just based on talent alone. But definitely, if I've got picks one through five, there are established players I think I'd, I don't want to accept the risk of a second-year guy having a second-year season. I can believe that. I can buy into that a little bit. And I, you know, when I, it's funny. Two months ago, I think I had him at fifteen, uh, and everyone was saying I was too low. And I, I, I now, I've got him, and I, I think I've got him around five, three to five area there. And I may revisit it, but I think some of some of the guys that we are thinking about counting on, I don't know if you can count on them either. You know, I, I'm never going to take Troy Tulowitzki in the first round anymore. 
I uh, no. just can't do that. Uh, Robinson Cano will go up there. Uh, I think Joey Votto will probably go up there, but he got hurt too. Matt Kemp, what do you do with him? Carlos Gonzalez. But you know, you keep going. You look at you look down the line. The first round was pretty tough this year. Yeah, and uh, Gene McCaffrey, uh, a friend of both of ours, I was talking to him about this very topic, and his opinion is that in those, in if you've got a very top level round, or you've determined that you're going to spend very heavily on your first pick in an auction, that you really have to get one of those five category guys, and you know that even kind of eliminates Miguel Cabrera to to an extent. It probably eliminates Votto. His bad knee is going to cut into what speed was already declining. Uh, all of a sudden, if you if you believe that you really want five categories out of your top guy, the market just shrinks. I you know the question is how many of those animals really exist? You know, uh, it's it, it's almost a false construct if you're drafting seven that you're going to get one of those sort of guys. Right. You you almost have to make a decision one way or another. So otherwise, you're making some severe uh, some uh, you're you're making some severe concessions to try to get one of those guys to fit into that picture. I think he was only talking about, and I'm only talking about, if you're in top five. Once you yeah, get once enough. you get past that, and there are no such guys, then you start looking at Cano, very reliable, three hundred thirty hundred guy, and so on. Okay, so Mike Trout's a no-brainer, you say, for the American League MVP. What about in the National League? Ah, uh, it's a lot tighter there. I mean, I think well, Braun's been, I think, the best NL player this year. Uh, you, know, you know, for the price, it might be a little bit different, but uh, I, I'll go with Ryan Braun. How about you? I like McCutcheon. He slowed down a little bit, but uh, you know, a good all-around year again. There's, it, it is a much tougher race to call from uh, the American League, where it, you know it's pretty much either Trout or uh, Cabrera. But really, you got to leave Cabrera by the side of the road on a value basis. Yeah, certainly on a fantasy basis. On a real life basis, you might be able to quibble a little bit, especially because Miggy's doing it as a third baseman now. But uh, right. although in real life, that <laughs> he, he stands at third base, he may not be doing it as a third baseman, a bona fide third baseman. But uh, yeah, um, it, 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 I think it, I, I'd probably go Braun from the fantasy perspective. Uh, it's funny that his numbers are actually better than last year, even after all the uh, testing controversy. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Erickson from RotoWire.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Channel. Uh, Jeff, uh, who's your biggest bust this year for a pitcher? Probably Tim Linscombe, although he's been better in the second half. Uh, I think Dan Heron's right there. John Lester's right there as well. And uh, how about a big, big bust batter? You know, there's Jacoby Ellsbury, a lot of these first-round guys, Justin Upton, uh, who we've talked about already. Uh, among the league guys, you know, there's a couple other guys I want to mention. They weren't guys we were counting on as like our, our core players, but Jamal Weeks, really miserable season this year. He probably spent like a tenth round pick to get him, maybe even a little higher. Uh, you were counting on those stolen bases. Uh, you just he destroyed your batting average. And if you're in an AL only league, you probably spend a good, a, a decent number of marginal dollars on Ryan Rayburn, and he's been absolutely miserable. Uh, it's just, you know, granted, you're not counting on in a ten team mix league, he doesn't even register. But if you're playing to AL Tout or AL Labor, you know, that, that really hurts when a guy like that tanks so badly. In 2013, we're going to be always looking for sleepers and what I'll call rebound sleepers, top guys who are having bad years. I like Justin Upton for 2013. I, I, I think you do too. And I'm wondering, do you have any other guys that you're looking at, whether as rebounds or, or young guys just coming into their own, that you think are going to be undervalued as we head into next fantasy season? Upton was was my guy too. Um, I would say you know uh, you know the guys that you know a lot of the guys are coming off of uh, unusual injuries. Uh, you pay attention to that. You know I, I'd say Upton and Pedroia are actually the two guys that you know and maybe it's by per- I'm personalizing it too much there, but you know I, I think that they'll both 
return their value quite a bit. I think Ian Kinsler was is not completely a bust, but I think he'll he was a little underperforming as well. I think he'll bounce back a little bit too. What about Ross Detweiler in Washington? He's been the subject of some arguments on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Fairly low strikeout guy, but he gets a lot of outs, and he gets fairly deep into games. And he was a former top draft pick, I believe, a fairly high draft pick. Is is this a, a good season that he's having, maybe a harbinger of something better to come? Yeah, you know, it's I, I never like putting too much faith in a guy that the organization doesn't have that much faith in, and, you know, they, to the tune of replacing with Chin Ming Wong for a while, uh, I, I think he has a. You know, I don't see anything in his stat profile that indicates that he's due for a huge, you know, leap forward. But uh, this is one where I think the scouts would have to take a play. I mean, he does have pedigree, like you mentioned. There's there's been no real growth in terms of the stat side. He's kept uh, the ball in the park a little bit better this year, so there's that. Um, he could be good. I mean, he's in a good National League team, a you know league average park at worst, uh, on a team that's kind of going to be a good team. So I think he'll be a sneaky source if you're trying to game the system for some wins. But I, you know, I don't see a huge breakout here here from him. Um, I, I haven't read that. I often admit I haven't read that topic on the boards. Maybe some people can make a stronger argument pro or con. And I could be a little bit more fully versed on him, maybe some of the stuff that jump out on him. But no, I don't see anything one way or another. I don't have a strong opinion on him. What about Roy Halladay at age thirty-six? There, uh, you know, he, he's like the poster child for, hey, let's pay attention to these spring training velocity reports a little bit. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's a lot of noise. Uh, you know, I know Dave Adler did something a few years ago on the various types of spring training noise and what's what's noise and what's news and all that. Uh, it was like an annual feature in the forecaster, but uh, I wonder if the next one we need to study is velocity reports, and not just the guy's first outing, you know, first two or three or four outings, see if it's picked up at all. But uh, he might be learning, you know, he might be adjusting to a different phase as a pitcher. Uh, you know, he's certainly been better since coming back from the DL. Uh, not not the elite guy that we can expect, but he's had some really nice gems in there too. Um, I I think he'll probably be a top ten pitcher. At least that's where he'll be drafted next year. I'll probably if I can get him around ten to twelve among starting pitchers, I'll probably take a chance on him. And I'll throw three names at you real quick. Uh, Jake Peavy had a good year after coming off all kinds of injury problems. Wade Miley came absolutely out of no place, and Max Scherzer continues to strike out guys but not get good results. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Scherzer uh, because he's been a profitable player even with some of the other issues there. You know, he's won 16 games this year. He's gotten results. Uh, but, you know, the strikeouts, 220 strikeouts. I mean, that, you know, even though he's got the, you know, high three ZRA, I mean, he's still been a hugely profitable player. And there's a big gulf between uh, his first half, second half. He was bad max in the first half a few times. He had a couple of those classic blow-up outings. He's been really solid lately. Um, yeah, he, yeah he, he, he's one of those guys that worked out well for me. In a couple of leagues, uh, I kind of paired him up with Brandon Morrow in a couple of leagues, and Morrow was on that path until he got hurt, and he hasn't been the same pitcher since coming back. Um, you know, PV's the guy that uh, Chris Liss and I, we own a score sheet team, and we've been trying to sell, but without really much success. We'll probably try to do so again in the offseason. I uh, do just worry about his durability a lot. Miley, I didn't see coming. Uh, I think he's a smart pitcher. I, I wonder what his ceiling is. I, I wonder if he's able to repeat it. Uh, but, hey, kudos to him for a great season. You know, the K rate just isn't there, uh, and that makes me wonder in the long term whether there's going to be uh, you know, some, some back, uh, so, uh, so, uh, so a little bit there where he falls back a little bit next year perhaps. Uh, there's something about me that just doesn't completely, utterly trust him. 
And would you throw a dollar at Roger Clemens if he turns up in Houston? No. I mean, he'll be in Houston, first of all. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he'll get the, 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 the one and a half runs of support in the American League. Uh, that That's not going to end well. Uh, yeah, I, I won't. Uh, I, 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 it's a great story. You know, it's fun to watch, I think. I'm not even sure how I feel about that. But, no, I won't be uh, spending a road at all on him. He's this, he'll be next year's uh, Manny Ramirez. And finally, Jeff, before we let you go, uh, you have rotowire.com. You're on the air uh, with uh, SiriusXM Satellite Radio, and you have a new vehicle, uh, a video that uh, is appearing, and it's really, really good, and I'd like you to tell the listeners about where they can find it and what they can expect. Yeah, sure. Uh, we, yeah, we're dabbling in that. We have a YouTube channel now. Uh, you can just go to rotowire.com slash video, uh, or you can go to youtube.com slash rotowire. Either way, you can get uh, all of our stuff there. Uh, it's mostly for football content right now, uh, but come springtime, when, yeah, basically come magazine time, I think we'll start filming some baseball segments, too. Uh, Chris List is driving most of this. I've been on a few segments. Uh, his co-host, Heather Ankeny, is on there. I'm going to start doing, I think we're going to try to get a little bit of regularity here. The, the key thing for us now is trying to turn around, speed up the turnaround time. Uh, but we're, we're still learning on it. We've got a nice little set. We've got some editing going on there, so it looks almost semi-professional so hopefully it'll, hopefully people will enjoy it and uh, we can find a way to get some reach with that well i can tell you it looks more than a little professional it's a really well done uh, broadcast in the sense that there's proper sets the lighting's good and a lot of times when you go to these youtube channels and and it's people doing fantasy content it looks like they pretty much shot it in their garage you know maybe with a blanket hanging up over top of the bicycles that are hanging on the wall and and it's you know poorly lit and and it's all single camera and you guys have multiple cameras so it's a it's a very slick production in addition to having all that great rotowire content which is of course number one issue well, thank you patrick appreciate it. it it's fun it's a new uh, medium for us to try to branch out on. You know, always trying to find a new angle because it's a hyper-competitive environment now. It's not like when we started, to, you know, started in the business, you know, '97. You know, and it was such a wide-open market. There, we came to the market at the right time with the right idea. Ron was one of the few guy proprietors out there that had fancy-specific content. So uh, now it's it's full. It's more mainstream. I don't have to explain to people what we're doing anymore. So we, now it's a, the question of staying fresh and relevant. And will you be at First Pitch Arizona? Oh, absolutely. Can't wait. We're playing some pr- promos to let our listeners know about the advantage and fun of going there. Maybe give us 15 seconds of why they should go to First Pitch Arizona. Absolutely. Uh, get to see great prospects from any seat in the house. Get to great, get great analysis from the top guys in the industry. And build up a ton of camaraderie, too. I can't tell you how awesome this industry is in terms of just good, solid, friendly people to hang out, talk baseball with, and play poker with at night get some good information and do well in your leagues, and uh, just think baseball in November. In Arizona, where it's nice warm weather, it's, a, it's not a hard sell. It's, it's a great time. You should really try it out. Absolutely. Jeff Erickson, thanks very much for joining us. Anytime, Patrick. That's Jeff Erickson from rotowire.com and SiriusXM Satellite Radio, and also from that YouTube video channel. you got to check that out as well. I mentioned uh, First Pitch Arizona. We're going to have another one of those little promos for the event just to try to convince you to think about it at least, and then when we come back, our regular commentaries. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Why to attend First Pitch Arizona? Reason number 58. The stadiums are empty. I do like going to the baseball games and seeing players in an environment where maybe there are 200 people in the stands with you at most. You can pretty much get any seat in the house. Front row behind home plate, it's yours. Hang out with the scouts and their radar guns. Front row behind the dugout, it's yours. 
get a first-hand earful of what the coaches are telling the players. You have an opportunity to go down right by the dugout. Oftentimes the players will come and talk to you because they're at a point in their careers where they don't know how important or how famous or how they're really supposed to act. Josh Reddick, what a terrific kid. I talked to him right before the game. I'm sitting behind home plate. His first two batting appearances, he struck out. Third appearance, he hit one over the right field wall. And as he crossed home plate, we made eye contact, and he gives me a thumbs up. Now, come on. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know who I am. First pitch, Arizona, November 2nd and 4th at the Double Tree Suites Hotel in Phoenix. Go to BaseballHQ.com slash seminars slash Arizona for more information and to register. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular weekly commentaries, last ones for the season. Matt Beagle is on deck with his Market Pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon tells us about Houston outfield prospect Domingo Santana. The Houston Astros' Domingo Santana quietly put together one of the better seasons of any player in the low minors. Santana was always considered a toolsy projectable prospect, but until this year he really hadn't had a breakout season. But what a difference a season in the hitter-friendly Cal League can make. Santana got off to a slow start in April when he hit just 218, but tore the cover off the ball for the rest of the year and ended the season hitting 302 with a 385 on base percentage and a very nice 536 slugging percentage. He had 26 doubles, 23 home runs, and 7 stolen bases. Santana also drew 55 walks, but did strike out 148 times in 457 at-bats. At 6'5", 230 pounds, Santana has the size and tools to be a prototypical power-hitting right fielder. He has plus bat speed and light tower power. Defensively, Santana covers ground well and has the strong, accurate throwing arm needed for right field. At the plate, he crushes fastballs and can hit the ball out of any park, but still struggles somewhat with pitch recognition and making consistent contact. Going forward, the 20-year-old Santana will need to prove that his offensive production this year was not strictly a phenomenon of the Cal, but he definitely has the raw tools to do exactly that and is a player that should be owned in all deeper keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with a comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long and through the offseason as well, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on all the top prospects and some of the ones you might not know about. Also, organizational moves, daily call-ups during the season, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week looked at Milwaukee outfielder Logan Schaefer. Arizona outfielder Adam Eaton, Seattle infielder Carlos Trenfell, Cincinnati left-hander Tony Singrani, and many, many more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about the end of the regular season being just the beginning for stat heads and sim gamers. As the baseball season winds down, for stat heads... It's just beginning. You see, in a couple weeks, we're going to have a full set of season statistics that are locked in that we can really analyze the numbers and start preparing for next year. It may be winter, but there's not much else to do, especially if you're north of the Mason-Dixon line. We can look at lefty-righty stats, home run tendencies. Look deeper and deeper to find hidden values, hidden indicators for the 2013 season. 
Other seasons are just beginning. For simulation gamers, games like Stratomatic provide a wonderful off-season of baseball enjoyment. There are leagues just starting now that play through the winter. They may have to use 2011 statistics, but still they give you that same baseball enjoyment. Except you can be the manager. You set your lineups. You determine when to bring in a relief pitcher. When do you steal? You can draft teams just like you do for rotisserie. If 2011 stats are too stale for you, there are old seasons you can play from the 70s, the 80s. There's a Negro League set out. There's Hall of Fame sets. All kinds of interesting baseball memorabilia that you can sift through, analyze, and take yourself back in time and put yourself in the manager's seat to keep enjoying this great sport of ours. Some simulation leagues start drafting using the latest stats in the middle of November. And that gives you a full winter of enjoyment. I have another draft in December, one in January. So you can start that season and keep baseball fresh. Keep looking at those statistics, discovering those guys who will be the leaders of 2013, the hidden values, the dollar speculations. So even though baseball may be over in September 30th in that area, for those of us who do numbers, it's just beginning. With a market pulse for Baseball HQ, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Matt's also the official video blogger for Stratomatic. Coming up next, it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. But first, this last message about First Pitch Arizona. Why to attend First Pitch Arizona? Reason number 23. You know, every year I, I, I look at the list of guys who are going down there and I think, wow, that's an amazing list of players. We, uh, we took a ride down to the Scottsdale ballpark and there's some, some pretty big guy playing third base. Did a ball that I don't know has, has come down yet. We, you know, who is that guy? And some of Pujols, Pujols, something like that, Al, Albert Pujols. Those of us that went to the conference, after seeing him launch a couple of rockets, had him on our rosters for his rookie season. Dan Ugla. And nobody had ever heard of him. And lo and behold, the next year he's hitting 25 home runs in the major leagues. So uh, it's a great opportunity to watch young players and get some insight into uh, where they are in their development and how they might help your team in the future. And uh, um, it's, it's always fun to watch the young prospects. You know, every year the, the quality of the players down there is just amazing. First Pitch Arizona, November 2nd to 4th at the Double Tree Suites Hotel in Phoenix. Go to BaseballHQ.com slash seminars slash Arizona for more information and to register. Yeah, you know, people say it's the second best thing to draft day, and I've been down there many times, and I can tell you, you won't have a better time talking about fantasy baseball and seeing the games than you will at First Pitch Arizona in Phoenix, November 2nd to 4th. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about who will be the top players in 2013. With the season less than three weeks away from completion and many fantasy owners already looking to next year, People are already asking, who will be the top players in 2013? The easy answer is to just look at this year's top players and assume that many of them will be back on top in 2013. But history shows that this is just not the case. In fact, our track record in projecting who is going to be among baseball's top players each year is pitiful. Over the past decade, we have about a 40% hit rate. So to do this exercise, we have to cast out a wider net 
looking not only at this year's top players, but also those who, through growth or regression, could vault into the first round next year. Let's start by looking at the current top 15, based on 5x5 rotisserie value. Number one is obviously Mike Trout. Several analysts, myself included, have already written extensively about how much regression we should expect for next year. I maintain that there are too many variables working against him and that a return to the first round is far from guaranteed. The next two are Ryan Braun and Miguel Cabrera, two players who have shown consistent productivity over the years, also good bets to return to the first round. Andrew McCutcheon is currently number four, given his consistent growth trend, is also a decent bet to return to this elite level. The next two are likely to fall short. Uh, R.A. Dickey is number five, and would be a long shot to repeat. Pitchers have a tough time sustaining their value anyway, and Dickey's age, even as a knuckleballer, works against him. He's already fading in the second half. Number six is Josh Hamilton, also too many risk factors. He's also been inconsistent over the years. Seventh, eighth, and ninth are all pitchers. All of them could well return to these elite levels, Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander, and Felix Hernandez. However, historically, the odds are against all three being able to do just that. Remember what happened to Tim Lincecum this year. The next three will be hard-pressed to return first-round value again as well. Number 10, Edwin Encarnacion. He's been inconsistent as battled injuries in the past, though he could be a strong candidate for second or third-round value. Number 11 is Adrian Beltre, who's been a consistent producer but is only ranking this high in 2012, because of the extraordinary numbers he's put up over the past six weeks. That is too small a sample size to better future on. And number 12 is Fernando Rodney. No way he repeats. In fact, I can't remember the last time I even saw a reliever among the top 15 players. Carlos Gonzalez checks in at number 13. I could see him improving on that next year. Alex Rios is 14. Won't likely repeat. Finally, number 15 is David Price. Another solid pitcher with excellent potential, but not all these pitchers are going to get in. Of these 15, eight are first-timers to the first round, which shows how volatile these rankings can be. So who else might be candidates to move up in 2013? First place I look is to players who have been first-rounders before, still have good skills upside, and may have just had an off year in 2012. At the top of this list are players like Matt Kemp, Joey Votto, and Justin Upton. I would put this trio ahead of just about any of those currently in the first round who are expected to regress. Players who may have already peaked and are barely on the outside looking in, guys like Albert Pujols, Robinson Cano, David Wright, still a chance they could sneak back up. And there are those young, upwardly mobile youngsters who are only going to get better, players like McCutcheon and Price were this year. At the top of this list are intriguing names like Adam Jones, Buster Posey, Jason Hayward, Steven Strasburg, and Madison Bumgarner. Slightly behind them and maybe another year away, guys like Starlin Castro, Chris Sale, and maybe even Chris Medlin. Intriguing names, but longer shots. Chase Headley, Desmond Jennings, Brett Laurie, and possibly even Jeff Samarja. 80% of next year's top players are going to come from those we project to finish in the top four rounds. So we're drawing from a pool of about 60 players. The other 20% are probably not even on our radar right now. This past spring, 
Who thought R.A. Dickey, Alex Rios, and Fernando Rodney would even be in the top 300, let alone the first round? Just a lot of food for thought as we head into the offseason and start trying to project what is going to happen in 2013. Follow along with us all offseason at BaseballHQ.com. And I am now on Twitter as well. Follow me at Ron Chandler. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about random opinions and brain flakes. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at usatoday.com, and he drops in to discuss his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at baseballhq.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to baseballhq.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of September the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our program. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Jeff Erickson of rotowire.com and SiriusXM Radio. A great guy. Jeff's just a great guy. It's a pleasure to talk with him whenever I get the chance. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, our League Watch analysts Harold Nichols and Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse columnist this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some really great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Doug Dennis's bullpens column looks at 2013 in the American League and National League West divisions. Ray Murphy's Speculator column gives out mulligans for 2012, players who had bad years that you shouldn't hold against them. And during the show, we talked about Stephen Nickran's excellent column about stretch run targets. Steve does a great job with that starting pitcher column. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday at BaseballHQ.com. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums as well. Also, remember you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook, and our Twitter feed is at Baseball HQ. We'll be back again in two weeks with our last show of the 2012 season. It'll be our BaseballHQ.com Roundtable Awards show, and our off-season coverage will begin in December. Thanks again for listening to the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.